Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you're following along uh, in a pew Bible, you can find that on page 944. If you'd like, it's also printed in your order of worship there on page 8. We'll be looking at Romans 8 today, verses uh, 12 to 17. We'll be looking at that in just a few moments. Romans 8 is such a glorious chapter in our Bibles. Uh, We talked last week about how it's kind of this yellow line on the road that just orients us to everything else we need to know as we navigate uh, this Christian life. And just by way of context, as we continue to come back to this rich Mount Everest of theology, it's important to remember where what we've been seeing and what Paul has been saying. If you remember, he has spent chapters developing the wretchedness of the human condition apart from Christ. The fact that we were under God's just wrath because of our sin and how sins reign because of what Adam had done. It has affected every part of us, mind and members, and we were powerless to do anything about such a horrible situation. And Paul describes that whole condition as being in the flesh. We were thinking about this like a movie. It would just be these dark, grayscale tones of human condition apart from the bright and vibrant life that we were made for, life with God. But that was the condition of being in the flesh, enslaved to sin and death. But the beauty and the wonder of God's good news that we have been seeing is that God has come up up with a solution that has remedied every aspect of that condition. And last week we saw those wondrous words that in the Spirit now, because of what Christ has done, there is a new verdict for believers. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, that condemnation, that punishment that we deserve has been taken away through the work of Jesus Christ. But it's not only that our conduct or condemnation has been taken away, but also that that powerless situation of being enslaved to sin has been remedied because Christ has sent us his very spirit. The Holy Spirit has come, and as Romans 8 2 says, it has set us free from the law of sin and death. And so as we saw last week, we have this new ability now as believers because the Spirit is writing the law on our hearts and enabling us to live more and more in accordance with the righteousness we were created to have. And so we have a new ability, we have a new life, because as Romans 8, 9 says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. These are amazing indicatives. They're declarations of who every believer, simply by faith, is in Christ and how every believer has the Spirit of God indwelling them. But I don't know about you, but as you went home last week, and either on the ride home or as the week went on, may have said, yeah, those indicatives are glorious, but this is kind of complicated. (laughs) All that life in the Spirit stuff that Paul was experiencing, and, and Paul was picking up on that last week, wasn't he, in saying that even though the Spirit has brought new resurrection life to us, Our bodies are not yet resurrected. And we still live in a world that in many ways is under the reign of sin. And so as we read these indicative passages, and by that I mean these declarations of who we are in Christ that are describing what's true of every Christian, we also find ourselves wondering, well, 
well, what am I supposed to do? What does this look like in the Christian life? What does it look like to live as those who are in the Spirit? And in our passage today, we're going to hear how Paul continues to tell us more truths about who we are, but he also starts to show us some of the implications of what that means, of what it is to live in the Spirit as a believer. And what we're going to see primarily is that living in the Spirit is really now learning what it means to live as children of God in a way that we never were before. And so let me read for us our passage in Romans 8, verses 12 to 17, and then I'll pray and ask for our God's help. Hear God's word. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. So far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that we are coming to things that are beyond our ability to fully understand and grasp. And that is not because you are not all wise and all good and all powerful and all loving. It's because we as creatures struggle to grasp the weightiness of all that you have done for us in Christ. But we thank you that we have your spirit and we pray that he would help us this morning to better understand your word and that he would help us most of all to understand what it means to truly be children of God who cry out, Abba, Father. And so we ask for your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll look at uh, this section in two points. Uh, First, we'll see that as a believer, you are led by the Spirit. And then secondly, you are a child of God. You are led by the Spirit and you are a child of God. So first of all, let's consider what Paul says about being led by the Spirit. You are led by the Spirit. We see that primarily in verses 12 to 14. Paul describes this new situation of of no longer being in the flesh and now being in the Spirit. And he does so by highlighting two main things. You have a new leader and you have a new battle. That's what it's going to mean to be led by the Spirit. Notice, first of all, your new leader. Verse 12 starts with the words, so then, which means in light of what we've been talking about, in light of all that Christ has done, and then it goes on to say this, we are not debtors to the flesh. That means this, you owe the flesh nothing. It's not in charge anymore. There's no dirt that the flesh can dig up on you to blackmail you. There are no strings that the flesh has that are not cut by the work of Christ. So when the agent representing the flesh shows up at your door, you can immediately know that it's a scam. You owe him nothing. And instead, Paul goes on to say, you have a new leader. 
Notice verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, a lot of times when we think about um, the leading of God's Spirit, we think of it as guiding us into decisions, right? Maybe a big decision that we're thinking about and the Spirit maybe opening and closing doors or an inner feeling of peace that we may have about one of these decisions. And while it's true that an aspect of the Spirit's illuminating work of leading us is helping us have the mind of Christ as we think about decisions, that, that's part of what the Spirit does, the concept of being led by the Spirit is far bigger than just thinking about the big decisions we're going to make. Being led by the Spirit, that that word led there, is being controlled, being governed, being under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And as we've seen what's been happening in the book of Romans, part of what we realize is the Spirit's leadership now is all about taking back everything that sin and the reign of sin and the reign of the flesh has hijacked. With the Spirit now in charge, He is renewing our minds and He's enlisting our bodies, our members, in the work that had all gone wrong under Adam, but now is being renewed by the Spirit. You see, rather than offering our bodies as instruments, back in chapter 6, if we think about that, offering our bodies as instruments or weapons of unrighteousness, which is how we used our bodies over and over again before coming to faith in Christ, now the Spirit is helping us to be able to offer those very same selves for God's glory and to walk according to God's ways, which the Spirit is now writing upon our hearts and empowering us now more and more to live according to. You see, as the Spirit leads, He empowers us to do the good that we were never able to do before. You know, how we think about this makes a big difference in how we view what's happening and how we view the struggles of the Christian life. Someone just reminded me uh, this week of a way that he and I had heard the struggle of the Christian life described before. And maybe you've heard it this way if you went to the same summer camp, although we went to different youth retreats. So um, anyhow, it must have been popular. Have you ever heard this? There are two dogs warring within you. And if you're a dog lover, I, I don't know what this means. But one is the flesh and one is the spirit. And which one is going to win? the one that you feed. Well, that's interesting. It makes sense that it feels like something's going on (laughs) that's not pleasant many times in the Christian life. But we need to understand that it's far different than how the Bible portrays what has actually happened. Instead, it's more like our heart and who we are (laughs) is like a fortress. It's like territory that was once ruled by a wicked tyrant. The sultan of sin was once ruling us, and the sultan of sin's reign was called the reign of the flesh. It was the policy that was in place. It was how we lived in Adam. Sin was reigning, and it was producing death. But through the work of Christ, sin has been completely dethroned. And what Paul is saying in all of these indicatives is you are no longer, as a person, you are no longer in the reign or the territory of the flesh. 
you are now completely under heaven's reign and the Spirit has now taken up residence within you. And as the one who is now within you and who is leading you, he is leading the restoration efforts of all that sin's reign had undone. It's as though the Spirit is coming to each member of our bodies and and saying, what was it that you used to do in the reign of the flesh? Now do this instead. Here's what you were created for. And you know what else the Spirit is doing is the Spirit is spending a lot of time with our minds, working to renew them by the Word, saying to our minds and our our higher faculties, saying to them, you were trained to interpret everything this way and to tell the members of this body to respond this way to what's going on. But here's what's really true. And here's how you can now respond in the way that you were made to be. You see, that's more a picture of what's going on than two powers warring to see which one is going to win. One has won and claimed you and is at work restoring you. Now, because we still have mortal bodies, because we still live in a fallen world, there is still a very real struggle that's happening and that we experience on a daily basis. The temptations that you feel, believers, are very real. But how do we make sense of them in light of all that Paul is saying? Well, biblically, what we see is this this tension that we feel in our daily Christian walk, it's really twofold. There There are two things at play. Part of it is internal. It's not internal of who's going to win within us. It's the experience of you coming under the restoring, redeeming work of the Spirit. You see, one of the things that happens to us is that when we are under sin's rule, when we have been in the realm of the flesh, our minds and our bodies have accumulated all kinds of orientations and habits and ruts and pathways that have been formed by our time under sin's rule. Even when we come to faith, we have still been conditioned in so many ways to not like certain things, the things of God, (laughs) and to like certain things, taking the things and gifts of God and and using them in in a self-oriented way. Paul has talked about what those those things that we once were a part of are earlier in the scriptures and and see if any of them resonate with, with habits and ways that you still feel shaped in your own life. Sexual immorality, greed, malice, envy, murder, discord, deceit, gossiping, slandering others, pride, ruthlessness. When Paul is going to talk in a moment, and and we'll see this, when he talks about putting to death the deeds of the body, he's talking about putting to death those ways that you used to live that are no longer in accord with who you are, with the Spirit living in you and renewing you. But see, many of these things feel so familiar because both our minds and our bodies have been oriented to do sin's bidding for so long. And so there's this internal experience of coming under the restoring work of the Spirit 
But there's also another aspect of what we feel in the daily Christian life, and that's external assault. Because sin has been dethroned from our lives, this tyrant has been cast out, and Paul says he no longer has any say. If he's to send an agent to the door, you're like, sorry, owe you nothing, no condemnation, spirit dwells here, but that tyrant wants desperately to rule your life again. And that tyrant also is thrilled if he can just bring about what he was always seeking to bring about, death and destruction and defacing the image of God in you. And so externally, he's bombarding the fortress of our hearts day in and day out with external attacks. We look around and we just see thing after thing that's calling us away from God and back toward the flesh, tempting us back towards sin's reign. And that external attack so often wears us down in so many ways and can make us think, what good is it to even try? I mean, look how bad things are all around us and we can lose sight of what the Spirit is doing. But he also, in that external attack, sends covert operatives. These more friendly-looking agents that may come to the doors of our heart, saying things that don't sound all that bad or scary. Things like, rely on yourself. You can do it. It's really not that bad. (laughs) Maybe God's keeping something good from you. All those little messages of ways to try and to get back in and do this destruction. But while we feel that tension of what's going on, it's important to realize who is in control, and that is the Spirit. And Michael Bird says this, and I think it's just so poignant in describing what this battle is like. It says, while he, sin, might seize the odd outpost or shake the walls with artillery or wound the morale of the people guarding the towers, even smuggle an odd enemy soldier over the wall, yet his power to annex our hearts is hampered by the fact that the Spirit of Christ is there and he has never surrendered any city back to this tyrant. You see, that's what's taking place. This isn't a battle of which dog will win. It's the struggle of what it means to be freed from sin's power while sin is still present. It isn't that we're trying to conquer the flesh in order to gain the spirit, but instead we're seeking to live as one who's under the spirit's control. And so you have this new leader as you're led by the Spirit. But Paul also goes on in this section to say there's also a new battle that you've been enlisted in. You have a new leader and a new battle. Notice what he says in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. These conditional statements can be tricky for us to understand, I think, rightly as believers. If you read that and it's at all alarming to you, uh, you're in good company. There's an aspect in which that's part of what it's doing. And so as we come to passages like this that are all over the scriptures, it's necessary to maintain two things. One is the truth of this verse and not try and explain it away. But then secondly, what this verse is saying within what this section and the rest of the scripture also teaches. 
And so first of all, considering this verse, this statement is real and true. If you live according to the flesh, according to sin's former reign, you will die. Living according to the flesh means walking according to its rule as this way of life. You will die is speaking of the Romans 6.23, forever death, the wages of sin being death that Scripture is warning us about. This is a grave warning of what the path of walking according to the flesh ultimately brings. But we also know what this section and the rest of Scripture teaches that in a very real and true way, God will ensure that real believers will not walk according to the flesh. They are indwelt by the Spirit, and as we saw last week, the Spirit himself who has brought us resurrection life will guarantee that even our bodies will be resurrected as we share in Christ's glory one day. And so you have these two things that for us don't seem to fit together very well, do they? If you do this, you will die but God will also keep you through the triune work um, that he has brought about through Christ. It's part of the reason for the tension of this is I think we're trying to reconcile what we need to know from a human perspective with what's actually happening with God's sovereign perspective. And that's always going to create a tension for creatures like us. And so, how do we, what do we do with passages like this? I think one of the most helpful ways of looking at it is that God uses warning passages like this as means in a believer's life to persevere them in the faith, to preserve them in the faith. Meaning meaning this, we could think of passages like this as the statement of saying, if you drink poison, you will die. Now, we could find ourselves asking all kinds of questions. Well, how much poison have I consumed in my lifetime? How much poison will I have to drink to tip the scales into death? And like all these kinds of things. Um, We could go down this whole rabbit hole of wondering those things. But if we think about this warning about drinking poison and that it brings about death, it is used in our life to keep us from drinking the poison. Um, And these labels that state these truths are a means to keep you from consuming it in any form. Well, the warning of what living according to the flesh will do to us if we do it, that we will perish forever, is used by the Spirit in the life of the believer to keep us vigilant in the fight against the flesh. And so we could go back to the fortress illustration for a moment. The Spirit has come and has set us free. And the Spirit is really saying to us, I am here It will all be okay, even while the battle is raging strong, right? All those attacks that are taking place. And I assure you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we will win, but this is a process, and you need to trust us. And there's one thing that I need you to do. Those deeds of the body, the way that you were in Adam, that reign of sin and death, no matter how innocent or even how overwhelming power, overwhelmingly powerful those things may seem. There's one thing you need to do. Put them to death. Do that, and you will live. You see, one of the main ways that the Spirit leads us is by empowering us to recognize and put to death 
the things that don't fit with who we are now in the Spirit. And so this is the situation that Paul describes as having a new leader, being led by the Spirit. But all of that can sound like, you know, just just another battle, just another ruler has taken place. We've traded one thing out for another and maybe it ends up being a little bit better. But that's where it's so important to see what Paul goes on to say. He then goes on to say that the Spirit has brought us into the kind of relationship that we have never experienced before. And it's what frames up the entirety of this whole experience. We've seen that you are led by the Spirit of God, but then our second point is you are a child of God. Believer, you are a child of God. All of this realm and battle and leading imagery gives way to the most relational language possible, the language of being children of God. And Paul really unpacks three things about what it means to be a child of God. The first thing is that as a believer, you have the son's status. You have the son's status. One of the things that I absolutely love about this this section is how Paul weaves together the phrases sons of God with children of God. And we may say, Paul, pick pick it. Is it is it one or the other? And he says, Nope, I need to talk about both. And there's a reason that he does that. When he says children of God, what he's doing is showing that it's not only males who are part of God's family. When he says children, we we realize it's both sons and daughters who are made part of the family of God. But then we may say, well, Paul, why don't you just use children? Why do you keep using this son's language? Well, it's important to see he speaks of both males and females as sons because he's showing that we all have the same status. It's the status that only sons and usually only firstborn sons would have had in Paul's day, the right to the inheritance and a bunch of other things. But even more important than just understanding the custom of Paul's day, when, when Paul speaks of men and women as having the status of sons, he's calling to mind that we share in the status of God's own unique son, the Lord Jesus. By the spirit of adoption, verse 17 tells us that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs, co-heirs with Christ. You know, both Roman and Jewish practices of adoption gave all of the rights and privileges of biological children to adopted children. It was in no way a second-class situation in either practice. And in fact, people from royal families would sometimes adopt children to be their heirs if they didn't have children or if their own children had disgraced them. So you don't want to do that, right? (laughs) And uh, You've disgraced me. I'll just adopt someone else to inherit uh, all of this. But uh, they were adopted into royalty. This imagery wouldn't have been lost on the church at Rome. When we think of the church of Rome, many of its members 
were lower class or slaves. And what Paul is saying is this the most amazing thing. You who have, have no status in society, and even some of you whose status is subhuman, this is what God gives you. You become the children of God. You have the status of God's own son, the Lord Jesus, and are co-heirs with him. Now, when we sing the song together, how deep the Father's love for us, one of the lines that we sing in that is, bring many sons to glory. Why should I gain from his reward? It's important to realize it isn't just the men who are singing that. It isn't just the men who can sing that. It is for all of us, men and women, singing together of the status that we have as all the privileges of the Son of God who have been brought into the status of being the children of God. And so not only do you have the Son's status, but secondly, Paul says, you are following the Son's story. In verse 17, as Paul concludes this section, we come across another conditional phrase. It says, provided that we suffer with him. And again, we could hear that and we could find ourselves saying, now wait a minute, have I suffered enough? Am I really a Christian because of how I've responded to suffering? Do I need to go suffer more? Again, think back to how God uses these statements in the lives of believers to help us know what we need to know. It's the Spirit really saying to us, here's what you need to know. Don't drink the poison, which has put to death the deeds of the body. But also, when this happens to you, it's part of the plan. When this happens to you, it's part of the plan. It means that as children, as sons of God, we follow in the story of the Son. We may think, as we come to faith in Christ, that heirs of God, children of God, shouldn't suffer in this life, right? But Jesus' life tells us a different story, doesn't it? Jesus blazed a new trail. He blazed a trail through perfect suffering and then into resurrection glory. And now we, who are children of God, are walking in his steps, suffering with him, it says. Do you see what's happening there? It's not suffer so that you could somehow come to have the status of child. It's the fact that God's children share in this path of suffering and glory. Jesus has blazed that trail, and you know what he's doing now? Walking with us, provided we suffer with him, as we follow in his steps, walking through the sufferings of this life, knowing that as we do so, there's this sure outcome, we will also be glorified with him. Christ is with us in our suffering, and we will be with him in his glory, is part of the story that we are now caught up in. This doesn't mean that we need to seek out suffering. This doesn't mean we shouldn't seek to alleviate the suffering that we're experiencing or that we notice other people are are experiencing. But what it does mean is this, that suffering is part of your story as a child, as a son of God. 
and Jesus is with you in it. And God is somehow using it on this path to glory. And Ryan's going to talk even more about that as we continue on in Romans 8 because Paul really starts to zoom in on what, how glory and suffering work together. So as a child of God, you have the son's status. You are following the son's story. And then third, you have the son's cry. You have the son's cry. In verses 15 and 16, Paul contrasts the relationship that we were in when we were in the flesh with what we now have in the Spirit. Our existence before Christ was one that was driven by fear. All kinds of fears that we would experience, but at its very core, what's going to happen to me as a sinner before a holy and righteous God? But now... That cry of fear is no longer what we need to experience as children of God because the Spirit is producing a different cry within us. It's producing a cry that we didn't have before. It's the cry of Abba, Father. And what Paul is doing here is he puts two terms side by side that are the same thing. First he says Abba, which is the Aramaic word for Father, or beloved Father. It's warm and it's intimate. And then right next to it, the, the Greek word there for Father. And so he's putting these terms of, of fatherhood there. And it's emphasizing really the intimacy and the familiarity with which one, a person would cry out and use these terms. We think of how Jesus taught us to pray, our Father. And it was so unique as his disciples heard the warmth and intimacy as he went to his father in prayer. It's also interesting that the only other place that these two words occur together like this, other than Galatians, is on the lips of Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14, 36. You see, what Paul is saying here is that the intimacy, the familiarity, the access that Jesus had in his cry to his Father is now what we have as children of God by the Spirit. And that cry is, it really changes everything. Russell Moore is a Christian author and a pastor. He uh, adopted two sons. He and his wife adopted two sons. And he tells his story, uh, and especially in relation to understanding this Abba cry. And it's written absolutely beautifully. And so instead of trying to summarize it, I, I want to read it for you. Um, he says this, The creepiest sound I have ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the Soviet Union on the first two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we had hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and to weep. 
The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and I pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? This place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boys' room. Little Sergi, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like. But neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they didn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered, in silence. On the last day of the trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye as by law we had to return to the U.S. and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew that he had a father and mother now. I will never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard the yell. And I was struck, maybe for the first time, by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament, ones I had memorized in vacation Bible school. And I was surprised by how little I had gotten it until now. You see, our situation in Adam is much like the children in that orphanage. Because of our sin, we were alone and cut off from the relationship with the God who created us, the relationship and fellowship and love that we were made to enjoy. But while we were there surviving and soothing ourselves in whatever way we knew how, God sent his only son. Jesus left his father's side, took on flesh, and came to us. So much so that he was even adopted by an earthly father. And he lived a perfect life so he could bear our sin. And in taking our sin upon himself and dying a death on a cross, he cried out something that he had never experienced before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he did that so that we could now cry something that we have never experienced before, the cry of Abba, Father, the cry of knowing 
that God has loved us so much that he has adopted us as his children. Jesus did that so that we could know the Father's love that he had known for all eternity. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And Paul says, God's fatherly love has been poured into our hearts by the Spirit. And he is the Spirit of adoption who testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Sometimes that inner testimony shows itself as peace and assurance that passes understanding. Sometimes it's this steady confidence that children of God have as sin rages strong that says, you know what, that's, that's not who I am anymore. But I don't think it's an accident that what Paul cites here in saying, Abba, Father, takes us back to Jesus' visceral garden cry. In his moment of greatest struggle, in his time of deepest anguish, What Jesus cries out is, Abba, Father. And so also, in our greatest times of anxiety, in our deepest moments of grief, when we are overwhelmed with what we or the ones we love must endure, the Spirit himself aids that primeval call out of us that says that things are really wrong. But that cry in and of itself, the request, let these things pass, shows that we believe that there is an Abba who hears, an Abba who cares, and one who will one day make all things right. And the Spirit who strengthened the Lord Jesus in greater adversity than we will ever endure, he is also in us to strengthen and reassure us knowing that because of Jesus, we will never be forsaken. Perhaps today, for the very first time, you're aware of the Spirit's cry within. Maybe you have felt the fear of sin's condemnation, but you've also heard the words of a father's love the most wonderful news of God's adoption is this. It comes as a gift, and it's received by faith. Believe today in God's love for you in sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to be the perfect sacrifice for your sin. And you can know the wonder, the security, the love, the glory of being a child of God. For those of us who are children of God and are already co-heirs with Christ by faith, I think this passage reminds us that the most important thing that we need to grow in as we live seeking to live in the Spirit is in our childlike cry with the Spirit learning to call out more and more to our Father for help, more and more to cry out to him for love, 
to cry out to him in thanks, hearing more and more his voice of who we are and less and less the shouts of the flesh of who we once were. And so the Spirit helps us to know what it is to call God Abba, Father. And the Spirit helps us to know what it is to have Jesus as our older brother who shares his whole inheritance with us. And the Spirit helps us to live as children of God. Let's ask for that help this morning. Our Father in heaven, your love is hard for us to even comprehend. We thank you for all that you have done in Christ to make us your children. We pray that you would help us as we learn this gospel more and more. Help us by your spirit to better know what it means for you to be our father, for Christ to be our brother, and for us to be in the spirit. Thank you for the life that's in us and that we will one day experience in fullness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.